in the mental health field too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. In your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Hey everybody, welcome back to It's Not Just In Your Head. This is Max Golding, LMFT, and Dr. Harriet Fraud, PhD. We are both actually therapists, and we're going to be talking about a topic that we covered kind of briefly, maybe topically, in the beginning of the podcast several episodes ago, and it's the topic of the DSM, or the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of, um, I think it's called Mental Disorders, or is it Mental yeah. Illnesses? I'm actually forgetting. Um, but it's it's in the DSM version 5, um, and, and the, the kind of the history and some of the socio-cultural political contexts that actually constructed the DSM. Um, before we do that, we're just going to kind of give a big thank you uh, first to uh, two of our patrons, First Winter and Sarah Turner, and of course, Liam for his uh, constant uh, help yeah. with the editing and, and social media. Um, but for First Winter and Sarah Turner, thank you guys so much for your um, for your enduring support and yes. our other patrons. Um, yeah, we just really appreciate it. It really does help because it does take work, um, like research, recording, editing, um, kind of a, there's a lot of labor that goes into the podcast. So we do appreciate the support that you guys are able to offer financially. And anyone who does want to uh, support us financially, you can uh, do so at uh, patreon.com slash it's not just in your head. And, um, but it's not, you know, we're not like all about the money. We, you know, we make our living outside of the podcast. Um, so if folks want to support us just by sending us an email and sharing your thoughts or even critical feedback or to suggest um, potential future guests on the podcast, you can email us as well at um, it's not just in your head at gmail.com. We also really would like you to know that we understand when people don't have much money. However, connect us to your friends. Talk us up. Then we'll get on algorithms that will give us a bigger audience. So whatever you <laughs> can do, we really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so, so before we launch into this, um, kind of the intellectual and the political aspects of the, the DSM, I was going to share a brief story about a client I was working with recently that I think kind of paints the picture that I think is a, is a problem. I mean, there's pros and cons, but we're going to obviously where the lefty critical types. So this, this client, when I first met them, they were, um, several weeks ago, they, you know, you do an initial assessment with with clients when they first come to you, and you you say what brings you here, what's going on, you know, what's the problem. And this person had so many diagnostic terms that they already knew, like from uh, bipolar disorder. Um, they knew the difference between one and two for bipolar disorder, um, borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, mm. major depressive disorder, PTSD. Um, they'd heard of complex PTSD. They weren't quite sure what the difference between normal PTSD and, and CPTSD or complex PTSD was. But they they kind of like had, and then ADHD, they're like, yeah, and I just, I can't focus. And they kind of kept going into these things. And um, I've run into other clients like that. Um, and as the sessions went on, it'd be like each week, it almost seemed like um, they were just, they were looking for a label, which I think is understandable. And probably a lot of listeners have done this. And anyone who has taken psychology classes, at some point, you start to kind of self-diagnose. Um, but um, 
one of the more helpful conversations we ended up having a few weeks into the uh, so-called treatment, I even find issue with the word treatment, is um, I just kind of confronted them and and was like, you know, I keep getting the impression that you just keep looking for a way to say there's something wrong with you. And I just, can we talk about this? Can we like zoom out and talk about why you need some some kind of diagnosis or label to attach to yourself? Like what what would you get out of it if we figured out this is the thing that you have. This is the problem the inside of you, right? And as we kind of um, unraveled different assumptions that they had about um, themselves, their identity, about the brain, about the brain of the body, about the human mind, um, about society, about culture, because it all and 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 actually we got into like a philosophical existential sort of discussion as well, because to me that's actually where all of this intersects, like the DSM. And all the diagnostic labels that we use to talk about people, whether we're using personality disorders to talk about people, mood disorders, anxiety disorders, trauma disorders, the whole you know neurocognitive uh, and neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, these we didn't just like uh, appear out of thin air into the world, and these things were just there, right? They came from somewhere, and this is something that I think kind of to the detriment of um, most of our society, most people don't really know that the DSM was born out of um, a context, a historical, political, geopolitical, cultural, uh, et cetera, kind of context. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Um, and to not like bash it, we're not going to say the DSM is just a total piece of trash and just throw it in the trash and ignore it. And it's it's useless because that's not true. There, I think there is some, um, there's clinical utility to it. There's like, um, it can be helpful to conceptualize things within our culture in certain terms, um, especially if you're like a clinical psychologist. Um, and it's like your job to, to figure out like, you know, does this kid meet criteria for what we call like ADHD or intermittent explosive disorder or like oppositional defiant, whatever the hell, all these, um, <laughs> I was, I want to laugh cause I'm just like, why do we, why do we have so many of these things? Um, but it can be helpful to kind of guide like clinical um, approaches to like treating people. Um, yeah. But there are also a lot of problems with it. So we're going to talk about that. So Yes, we certainly have to, because since its inception, the diagnostic statistical categories were created by people who represented different aspects of the psychological industrial complex, which is they were formulated by people from the drug companies and the insurance companies to be able to pigeonhole people into a diagnosis that could be medicated and therefore the costs of the insurance company could be less because therapy is more important. Mm-hmm. It's more important, but that was this lift is much cheaper in the long run, but in the short run, it's much more expensive for the insurance company. And so they want to medicate and give this person a pill and then the pharmaceutical industry can sell them a pill or the insurance company can cut their costs by paying for the pill because they get a great rate for paying for pills. And meanwhile, the complexity of the disorder of living in a society and trying to cope is forgotten. It's also an attempt to make biological the psychological issues that we have. And we ought to understand, and there are many books, it's not just coming from my head, 
we have to understand that we are biopsychological characters. All of us, there are biochemical changes that occur with every emotion that we have. And so we can always see a biochemical imbalance when someone's unhappy. But that doesn't mean that their problems are biological because psychology affects biology intimately. In every biochemical change, every, every psychological change has a concomitant biochemical change. And for example, I have found that clients who were heavily medicated and called borderlines, or they used to be called manic depressives, grew up with people often from fundamentalist homes where they were of God or the devil, or non-fundamentalist homes where they were all good or all bad. It was all one thing or all the other. And they developed a biochemical reaction of being good or terrible. And with therapy, they could escape that without having lithium and other powerful drugs that had terrible side effects. So we see very clearly that although there are some useful diagnoses, the whole enterprise was to pigeonhole human beings to pretend their problems were not social, political, economic, but purely psychologically biochemical and could therefore be cured by a profitable pill. That is mistaken. That is terrible. Most people's problems are post-traumatic stress disorders resulting from childhood and the society they live in, which doesn't mean that post-traumatic stress Disorder shouldn't be studied and understood. And if it absolutely has to be, it could be medicated. But I've found that people who have been horribly treated don't really need chemicals necessarily, but they need to be able to work out what happened to them because at a moment of trauma, one loses oneself. You lose connection to the self. And these drugs don't reconnect you. They just allow you to function better in society. Therapy reconnects you. And so, you know, we've been sold a real bill of goods here. And that doesn't mean that the DSM is totally useless or that sometimes when you can't get out of bed, a medication can help you. Yeah, it can. But even the, even the National Institutes of Mental Health come out annually with statements that the Diagnostical Statistical Manual is incomplete because it doesn't talk about the etiology, how people got here, what happened so that they're so upset. However, they don't have an advertising budget. And we are the only country in the developed world that allows direct-to-consumer drug advertising. They don't have an advertising budget, so their voice is stilled. But this is largely, not entirely, but largely a terrible thing that has happened to make people feel crazy and be on pills when they need help. 
enough of my rant, Max. Sorry to interrupt. Well, no, it's fine. I so um, I obtained a book called uh, "Nobody's Normal" recently: How Culture Created the Stigma of Mental Illness by an anthropologist named Roy Rid- Roy Richard Grinker. Who um, I think it would be great if we could get him on sometime. Um, I was watching a, a YouTube talk he had with someone, and the the first thing that caught my attention, well, other than him being an anthropologist, because my like my undergrad in college was anthropology, uh, cultural anthropology, and I sometimes have like wondered why have I not actually ventured fully into like a cultural anthropological view of mental health. I just when I became a therapist, I never thought to like really take a deep dive. So. Um, I've only kind of skimmed, I've not thoroughly read the whole book, but um, a few, I might actually kind of scroll through because I have it in front of me on a, on a PDF. Um, one thing that I did, I did not know was that the DSM, so we're in the DSM-5 now, and there was a thing called the DSM-1 that actually was developed, um, so I, I didn't know this, although the, the drug company stuff that Harriet has mentioned today in a previous podcast it was a, a pretty big part of it because psychiatrists... Um, were the kind of the the creators, um, uh, the manufacturers, if you will, of the DSM one and and so on. Um, the the DSM one actually was sort of exported out of military medical settings, where um, medical doctors and psychiatrists within the U.S. military were starting to observe basically madness, but like like severe PTSD. Even though I don't think the term was had existed back then. Um, things that um, would probably be called schizophrenia and and like severe mood disorders and the whole kind of shebang um, was very clearly observable after World War One. And you know you could you can kind of zoom out of the situation. You go okay, let's just let's just ask in good faith. Why would you go from before World War One to during and after World War One? You'd see this like mass um, cropping up of so-called mental disorders and, and mental illnesses. Well. I mean, any thinking person would say, well, it's not like the individuals, it's not like it was just in their heads, right? They didn't just up and like kind of go crazy. You'd say, well, it probably had something to do with the war, right? So like what happens during war? Well, you send a bunch of guys, you know, back in the day, it was just men. Like you send all these guys off um, to shoot at people and bomb people. And um, they're in places they've never been to before. They're torn away from their families and their communities. They watch their friends die. They themselves might get injured. Um, and they cannot actually, um, they can't integrate and make sense of what's going on. And so their mental capacity to understand themselves and their own communities and reality and the, the larger, probably philosophical existential questions of like, why is there war? Why can't people get along? Why is there not peace? Mm-hmm. Who sent us here? All these, all these questions that actually have to do with like culture, society, politics, economics, which would probably explain their situation better than anything else their minds and their brains and their bodies and their hearts and their souls couldn't explain it. And they started seeing the, um, the aftermath of, of world war one. So these medical professionals from their cultural, like, like in the culture of, um, you know, think, think about what the culture was of 1940s, uh, straight, white, cisgender, heterosexual, or I already said straight, uh, white male, uh, educated men who like own property and probably inherited property, um, during a, an extremely racist and sexist, et cetera, kind of time, a handful of guys sitting around saying, how do we understand this, right? So that was the culture in which they said, okay, let's let's cl- create like a sort of systemat- systematized list of um, 
of the way, like different categories. So that person's hearing voices, that person's seeing things, that person's not seeing things, but they are hearing voices. That person um, no longer can sleep at night and is having these recurring flashbacks of explosions. Um, and anyone who reminds them of a German or something mm-hmm. or reminds them of the same setting that they were in when they saw their friend get blown to pieces, that person in those situations flies into a rage and starts uh, just punching people in the face and like getting really aggressive, right? So they started kind of creating these categories. Um, now, uh, so so then you you start to you can start to see where from that history, like so war sort of um, it's not like war caused mental illness or or mental disorders, but that's one of the contexts that um, that Roy Grinker's book talks about, but. The, the book is really interestingly constructed. It's actually in three parts. The, the part one is called capitalism. Part two is called wars. And part three is called body and mind. And so in the first part that he calls capitalism, he actually talks about um, kind of the transition from feudalism to capitalism over the, the few hundred years that that um, kind of eventually occurred. Um saying that that what capitalism did just in the conceptualization of the individual as these sort of smaller units that were sort of taken from um, their context in their little like villages and their townships um, and far before there was a sort of secularized um, idea of like man having free will and people making choices and then you know acting within the free market or whatever um, there was a much kind of simpler sort of like religious, conceptualization that people didn't really have free will and they just sort of operated based off of what the needs were within the community of like, you know, I, I, uh, I tend to the cows or I, you know, I bang on the cobblestones and I raise the kids and, and whatnot. And, um, what this author is pointing out is that there were clearly forms of mental suffering that were occurring during feudalism. And there's, you can look back at, um, literature from like ancient China and ancient Greece and like anywhere. And there's, there's stuff that we would probably say, oh, that, that sounds like depression. That sounds like PTSD or whatever, right? Like these are still like probably human universals, the kinds of ways that humans suffer in different situations. But he is kind of arguing that, uh, what capitalism did was, um, create a new situation where people were kind of atomized as individuals and that their self-worth was transformed into the value they were able to produce as workers, as individuals, taken out of community contexts, mm-hmm. and that this started to create a new, um, a new kind of maybe not madness, but a new like map to understand individuality and individualism. And so the the culture that capitalism created of like we're all individuals and we're sort of competing within a market against each other was was kind of like. Um, He's actually really, he's more careful than I think we would be in that he's saying capitalism didn't create the problem, but it created a new way for existing human problems to like emerge in a new culture. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing things that already were, were probably there in different, to different degrees in different ways that you'd observe them. But now they were probably kind of amplified and like broadened out. Um, but yeah. even back, yeah, but even back then is the last thing I'll say here is just, is that there still was no DSM back then, right? There was just... Um, he was kind of conceptualizing, you know, workers who, if they weren't able to work as efficiently or they were reacting th- to things in a certain way, if they weren't fitting the, the the mold of a normal good worker under capitalism, 
that's where sort of mental health, mental illness stigma was starting to emerge in this big way within that cultural context, like a lazy worker, a stupid worker, a child that isn't, um, isn't good enough at doing the task or whatever. And now the mom is like ashamed of him. And the, um, so it's kind of, kind of created these like cascading effects. Um, and of course, world war one and two were very much kind of linked to, you know, capitalists, um, trying to make money. So, so there's a, a kind of a clear through line between those two, but I'll, I'll shut up and let you uh, respond to whatever you want, Harriet. If we look at mental health as connection, as a sense of being part of something, as having a purpose, the purpose was not very clear in World War I. It was absent in the Vietnam War, which is when the whole diagnosis was formed because there were more people who came home with PTSD than wounds or death mm-hmm. because the mental wound of going and killing people for no justifiable reason was overwhelming. And I think that what happens is that people were, they were connected to their buddies and then when they came home and were disconnected by the only thing they could hold on to, which is their buddies, their fellow, because women weren't allowed, Marines, or in the army, their fellow soldiers, and the wax, their fellow helpers, they went mad because the one tenuous connection they had was gone. And they came back to families who hadn't been through this trauma, who didn't know what that meant. And I think our society fosters disconnection, as Max said, fosters competition. It fosters the idea that your self-worth can be measured by your net worth so that someone like Donald Trump, a rapist and a thief who is now facing 27 sexual assault cases, as well as fraud, bank fraud, insurance fraud, and there's another fraud. What was it? Oh, yeah, real estate fraud is um, beloved by 74 million people in the United States because he's rich and he brags about it and because he expresses their rage that they feel disconnected and gives them a connection in bizarre QAnon theories and fantasies. But they feel connected. They feel connected like the Nazis did connected as they raised their arms in a fascist salute. And, you know, we suffer in our society from disconnection. And I think putting out a whole bunch of pigeonholing diagnoses formulated, and this is very, very well um, established by Sadler and by, well, so many different people, that you can really know that uh, the DSM was created with huge input and by profiteers. Also, we ought to mention that psychiatrists, who are often psychopharmacologists, many of them, they don't tabulate how many, but many of them get money as kickbacks from the drug companies for prescribing. And the lowest you can get is $40,000 a year for bringing colleagues together 
and touting the wonderful benefits of this drug and having wine and cheese provided by the drug maker who has a representative there. And if you say anything negative, you're not paid. And that goes all the way up to the top so that the child psychiatrist who was in charge of the child psychiatry journal and at Harvard got a whole institute and also more than $3.4 million a year for saying that Zyprexa was a good way to cure psychosis in children. When it isn't, it just makes them very fat and miserable. But he got so much money. And when he asked about it, one of his representatives, I heard an interview, was asked, you know, you were fined, the biggest fine in history, which was about $3 million, of course. They made $17 billion off that drug, so... They said, well, you know, you had a big fine. Why did you do this? And the man said, the doctor said, hey, when you're racing towards $17 billion, you pay the traffic ticket. And so in a capitalist society where your self-worth is your network worth and you're making more money, so you destroy the lives of thousands of children. So what? You're making money. And those values are very bad for mental health because they deny our connection to one another, our goal together of making a better world and a better society. And nothing could illustrate that more than the savagery of a war that people don't understand. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue back to um, Grinker's book because it, it connects to that and, and provides more sort of historical and cultural context um, for, for why we're in the situation we're in today. So from uh, chapter two, uh, which is titled The Invention of Mental Illness. And actually, and Grinker like actually doesn't deny the existence of mental illness. He's, he's, he's actually very careful with his language. But um, the first paragraph of the chapter says, mental illnesses were not named or classified because there was any new, new scientific knowledge about the mind or because the mentally ill were singled out for confine, confinement. It was the depths of confinement itself, Foucault writes, so that's from Foucault's uh, History of Madness book, I think, that generated the phenomenon. Until confinement, doctors had never before seen so many deviant individuals in a single space. Confinement thus created the conditions in which doctors could observe people, generate the concept of mental illness, separate, separate diseases of the body from diseases of the mind, excuse me, and attempt to establish psychiatry as a new branch of medicine. And in this world into which mental illness would soon emerge as a distinct object of study, mostly well-meaning doctors believed that confinement represented real progress. And so the context of this, I, I assume he went over this in the first chapter, which I, I just skimmed a little bit before and I don't remember what he wrote in it, but the confinement, the sort of like um, asylums and such that were kind of emerging were emerging at the same time of the Industrial Revolution, I'm, I'm pretty sure, where you had um, masses of people that were kind of you know, uh, there was a sort of exodus from like the countryside into the factories, and and that was creating a certain a certain kind of madness for some people and children. And there'd be you know there'd be like like orphans or like the disabled, and you know there was these sort of what we what they were just calling social deviants in various ways. Mm -hmm. They were all kind of getting packed into the same place, confined into sort of medically observable contexts. That suddenly doctors um, were were thinking like, well, look at that weird behavior and look at that, 
weird way of speaking and and look at those patterns of stupid thoughts that don't make any sense. And so they were actually sort of, it was almost like herding like this industrial model all of a sudden of herding a bunch of people in really messed up situations in their lives, right? Mm. Because they'd been sort of snatched away from the communities that had made sense in a certain way. Um, and and also I should say maybe as a, as a sort of caveat, I mean, I'm sure that if you'd like broken your leg and you're in a village where like people with a broken leg are totally useless and no one cares about you anymore or something like that. I mean, I'm sure that happened or you're like a woman who like can't bear children or you're, or I don't know, you like can't produce breast milk. I'm sure there's all kinds of situations where people treated others really poorly and said like, you're totally useless to us because you're not serving a function in the village or something. I'm sure like that was just, I'm sure that happened on some scale, but all of a sudden imagine like all the people who are considered sort of outcasts, um, like thrown into a new environment as the, as the industrial revolution had had begun, and then within that new environment, they didn't adapt very well, and then they're all thrown into like asylums and other places where they're confined and observed. Um, so he goes on and says, the mentally ill were a, were a society's undesirable, physically excluded from the community as a novel kind of human being, but now conceptually included into the new world of science and rationality. Doctors believed that patients could improve and eventually rejoin society only if first separated from their communities and placed in new homes with new rules and routines. Um, and it goes on to, to, to some, some commentary on things like, like psychosis. Um, but I mean, it, it's, it, it is really hard. I think at this, you know, it's what 2021 now, right? So how often do we think back to like when, <laughs> I don't know, from the, the early stages of industrial uh, capitalism <laughs> to consider that, well, first of all, like that was actually a, a time that existed and that's like a way that people lived their lives, but that these are some of the contextual um, historical markers that created the conditions for what now is the, we just assume like psychiatry is a very legitimate and helpful um, medical field as well as psychotherapy, as well as social work and so on. Right. But on some level, like we're all within the mental health field generally, I think even us, uh, Harriet, you and me, mm-hmm. we're we're responding. We we still are. Re- I think we are very helpful individuals, and I think a lot of psychiatrists are helpful. But we're still kind of responding to like sociocultural phenomena that are on a kind of historical and economic continuum, right? Like we're we're not just responding to individual suffering. We're responding to like individual suffering in a context. Um, but we're still usually trying to treat. The individual, you know, even if we understand this, which is sometimes the the conundrum I find difficult as a therapist. Yes, because look, we can't, you know, people are not only socioeconomic creatures. They're person they're personally interacting yeah. with their conditions, and those yeah. things have to be considered. However, I've found that most people, if they understand the context of their suffering are much better off. Not that they immediately get up and start singing. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it helps. And I think just talking to someone who helps you connect to yourself where you disconnected because your mm-hmm. authentic self couldn't really survive and please the people around you. So it mm-hmm. had you had to disconnect from yourself. And we help people connect from ourselves, their connect to themselves. However, if we were in a connected society, your parents wouldn't be all that important. I noticed that in France, where the kids can go to excellent childcare from the time they're born. And they're there all day. They can be there all day. 
and they go home having been fed dinner in their nice clean outfits because they change when they get there and they get their medical care there and there are mental health services there. And so children have this bonding. You know, the French are always protesting. And I realize that part of it is because they bond with their group. They're with the same group of kids all through from the two years old, which is actually three is when education is mandatory, but often kids become and go to child cares earlier, all the way through the end of high school and because school is not is free, all the way to the end of graduate school, you have a sense of a community, of a bond with others like you. And mm-hmm. that gives people a sense that they need a group and they're part of a group, which is why as soon as you retire in France, you join the retirees of wherever you live. And mm-hmm. that people tend to always know that they need connection. And when they don't like something, they think this isn't fair. We were there once when they thought they they wanted to reduce the funds for our child care. And there were hundreds of thousands of people immediately in the street because they thought, not I have to take care of this alone, I am the Lone Ranger, but we need to band together to change. There's a sense of the we, which helps people be more connected. And Americans Mm -hmm. have lost that more than any other people I can think of. And I think it makes us very, very sick a lot and very upset. And the solution is not only to take pills. The solution is to figure out what's wrong, change your own biochemistry, in the figuring, reconnect with the part of yourself that lost Mm. and join other people. It's a whole different paradigm because in one, you're sold something and in the other, you join with yourself and others. Really different. And yeah, and I, we've touched on this a bit too before in, you know, I have this like obsessive, like got to organize, organize the workplace, organize the the tenants, organize whatever. And part of that, I kind of realized recently that sometimes like I've been off-putting to some people in my life where they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Activism, organizing, fighting the bad guys. I get it. Like, can you, can we, can we talk about like sports or something, you know? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> fine. Um, but, um, but I, but I realized at a certain point that part of it is actually this very urgent sense that like I need to be a sort of vessel of change within the culture to build communities so that we have stronger communities. It's not just like get a collective bargaining contract, fight the landlord, go on rents, like fight the bad guys. I mean, part of that is there's like identifiable forces. I think once you kind of wake up to it where you're like, okay, well that identifiable force over there is actually like making it almost impossible for us to even form serious bonds of solidarity. So let's like band together and attack it, right? It kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. But um, as I was studying the formation of tenants, associations, and councils, something that's, um, I mean, living in Santa Barbara, we have not we have not normalized this yet within our tenants union, but in like in LA and the Bay Area, they've, they've gotten a lot of success with these things. But th- one of the things they talk about with a tenants association, sort of like if you think of like a housing co-op, but like in a big apartment complex, like you guys have a lot of in New York, you can do this in any apartment complex in theory. You get you know a 10-unit building, 20-unit, 50-unit building, where you just get the tenants to start having regular meetings. Like, you know, once a month, you figure out, you know, let's say the landlords are totally fine. Like nobody has serious grievances with the landlord and they think the rent's totally affordable. Okay, great. 
well, if you did actually have like a normalized um, meeting process where, okay, we're going to have some barbecues. We find that the elderly person needs some, some help. So-and-so's kids need some childcare. Um, so-and-so has like a lot of really helpful tools. And so if everybody throws in a little bit of deposit money, they can create a little tool library within the apartment complex. There are totally, there are ways within our super, um, like hyper atomized society to start rethinking, like why, like, what if there actually are some creative ways for us to figure out how to rebuild community since we've all just been sort of ripped apart from various parts of community. And, you know, some people do have like really strong communities, like their families or churches or, mm-hmm. or whatever. But, you know, you always say this, Harriet, and I've, I've repeated this because of you, that was it, what, one in four Americans had, this is no pre-COVID, one. have no one to talk to in the hardest of times. Um, and then it was, and I think in the fifties or something, you know, 50 years ago or something, 50, 70 years ago, it was what, like, um, it was just way less. I forgot the statistic you, you share on that. Yeah, what, what they said is there are fewer people in groups now than were in bowling leagues alone in the 1970s. And there was a right. lot less loneliness because people were connected. Mm-hmm. And not well, so, yeah, so based on that, I mean, I think this is why this is another sort of dilemma, I think, in that, you know, working in the mental health field, people come to us, this goes back to that initial story, people come to us assuming that they're a sort of broken yeah. individual, that there's something wrong with them, that like the things around them might be a little bit frustrating or off or they don't like them or whatever, but it really is about them being like, there's this sort of focus and it's not selfish and it's not narcissistic, but it is this, I think it's, it's, it's a sort of ideological, um, and it's like hegemonic to use like a big word for those who don't, don't know, like think of like, if there's a pyramid, you know, and there's like the people at the top with all the power that the hegemony is like, whatever is decided, whatever the ide- prevailing ideology and stuff at the top kind of trickles down, that's like hegemony. And then like from, th- from there, people sort of adopt a certain way of thinking. It's almost like trickle down economics, but like ways of seeing the world. And I think there has been this like decades long sort of ideological um, embodiment and, and, and conceptualization with people as themselves as individuals who, who probably have something wrong with them and that they need to be fixed by medical psychiatric like evaluation and treatment and that can be from medical treatment but it can just be from psychotherapeutic treatment but even then i think it's like like i need you to help me work out what's what's wrong with me versus like right connect to the world better and 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 make the world better so the world can connect to me better and so i can connect to the world in a better place in a, in a better way and i'm going to read one more thing from grinker's book because the the scary thing to me is that when we talk about hegemony from a, I mean, if we actually, this is going to, this might sound to some, like we had a patron like dump us recently because they were like, you're not even talking about mental health anymore. And we're like, everything's mental health, man. Don't worry about it. But to make this, make it kind of connect here to, if, to when we talk about things like, when we talk about capitalism, we're always, we're also talking about imperialism, right? Because capitalism needs to find new markets to exploit, new labor and new resources. The U.S.'s sort of hegemony around the idea of like this, these like hyper individuals and everything. And this, this view of mental health is not just the, I agree with you, Harriet, when you look at a lot of other, um, you know, whether it's France and some of the, um, you know, cooler European countries, uh, yeah, the Scandinavian countries, but also if you just look at like a variety of like more indigenous sort of like South American, African, Southeast Asian, whatever, you know, I mean, ancient, like more traditional Chinese, um, I mean, like most most cultures that have like survived colonialism and like had some sense of like their cultural identities intact, like 
there are a lot of like pretty resilient, um, like there's, there's stuff within the cultures that mitigate against um, some of the more terrible stuff that I think we see, which is not, I'm not like romanticizing or fetishizing like indigenous peoples, um, but just from, I don't know, the little, the little tour I took in my undergrad with cultural anthropology, but here's, I'm going to read this bit that's, that's kind of laying out the, well, I'll just, I'll just read it to kind of like point it out. So, okay. uh, so Grinker writes in 2005, Insel wrote, Insel is just some writer person. Psychiatry's impact on public health will require that mental disorders be understood and treated as brain disorders. His agenda parallels the international efforts of many public health workers to diagnose and treat mental illnesses conceptualized in Western DSM terms everywhere in the world, often at the risk of seeing the individual in isolation from culture. The APA's website, and APA is American Psychological Association, unless this is a psychiatric association, uh, their website, for example, lists readings in global mental health, such as personality disorders in Basque, Spain, or Basque, Spain, trauma and depression in Ethiopian women, postpartum mood disorder in Iran, and so on. The World Health Organization's Mental Health Gap Action Program recognizes that the use of such labels across the globe is problematic. In an admirable effort to mitigate wholesale exports of Western psychiatry, the Mental Health Gap Action Program seeks to balance the use of Western models of care with those that are culturally appropriate, as well as balance the use of pharmaceuticals and local indigenous systems of healing. Nonetheless, they tip the balance toward the science of the brain. In a 2011 issue of The Lancet, the MH Gap, that's the um, the global health people, it's just an acronym. Their leaders wrote that irrational and inappropriate interventions should be discouraged and weeded out. They added the absence of cures and the dearth of preventative interventions for mental, neurological, and substance abuse disorders in part reflect a limited understanding of the brain and its molecular and cellular mechanisms. And so this this paragraph is in the context of a longer bit that he has on the brain and like this newer emergence of like brain science and psychiatry, which I do think, yeah, but which I think is really cool. You know, when you look into this stuff, I think like Dan Siegel and interpersonal neurobiology, I feel like Gabor Mate, um, he digs into some of the, 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 um, the more responsible applications of thinking about brain science and, and the, the connected connectivity, um, and this, this idea of the brain as a social organ and such. But what I think um, Grinker's pointing out here is even that there's, if you can kind of, you can trace it out where like the global health agenda um, is still being ultimately guided, even even with people trying to protect against it, it's being guided through a Western DSM lens to look at individual pathology. Yes. Uh, and, and now they're trying to apply, apply brain science to it. So even, and they're saying, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll allow a little bit of like indigenous healing stuff. We'll let you guys like, you know, use your... Um, you're like psychedelic drugs that you find in the forest and like do like shamanistic healing ceremonies or whatever. But at the end of the day, like that's kind of stupid and you should probably understand all these problems as like brain problems. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And this probably also is part, I mean, I hate to say it, but this is whether it's explicit or implicit, it's probably a bit of a soft power. Um, yes. You know, mode for the U S right. Because it, it, it gives new inroads of markets and geopolitical influence by, by the West into so sell our drugs every anywhere. Exactly. Exactly. And whether, whether it's drugs and I think also that I think it's the ideology as well, right? Like yeah. whether it's big pharma or it's like people starting to see themselves as more atomized separate individuals that aren't really parts of like tribes or villages or cultures or, or whatever. Or I think event, if, 
You know, exactly. that's one of the big things that they don't want. Because our right. hegemony is not only caught, it's also taught. I mean, we have a media that doesn't really allow for socialist alternatives except by pejoratizing them. Mm-hmm. And we have whole movements that, you know, are personified by uh, Tuberville, Tommy Tuberville, representative of Alabama, who said that he is determined to make change because his father fought and died in World War II fighting against mm-hmm. socialism. Hello, mm-hmm. they were fighting yeah. against fascism. It was about anti and this whole idea is not only in the culture, it is a deliberate message in the textbooks and in the televisions and and so on. It is a deliberate message that mm. connecting with other people to empower yourself is much less effective than buying a pill. Mm. Also, you can see it with brain science. Brain mm. science shows that every emotion... Every thought starts with an emotion and that you can follow the neurons and that Mm. people's feelings and people's experiences in childhood and adulthood affect their brains. So Mm. let's talk about changing those experiences and helping people Mm. talk about it. And you can see it in collective societies like Mondragon, which is a city of 104 cooperatives where you know, if someone has trouble at work, their fellow workers talk to them about it, and they almost and also if they seem to be addicted, so they're not doing what they should, they talk to them about it, and almost never do they have to go to rehab. And there's mm-hmm. a book called The Spirit Level, which shows that the greater the inequality there is in a society, and the U.S. is now the most unequal of all the developed countries. But the more un- inequality, the more addiction, the more depression, the more divorce, the more homicides, the more suicides, and so on, all of which are, quote, pathologies in a pathological society. So if someone comes into your office, of course you have to deal with who they are, how they got so, to- so upset, but you can't deny that it doesn't that this is not just in their brain, that they have been influenced and they need to reconnect with themselves and then with other people rather than be drugged with some quickie pill that's advertised. That's Mm -hmm. really dangerous to our field and to the people who come and seek help. Well, and, and um, I was just, I just found another, another bit where, um, He's actually talking about the um, well. For earlier on in the book, he's talking about just the damage of stigma generally. That like, mm-hmm. um, just you know, a sense of shame around like there's something wrong with me. That 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 itself is the pathology. Maybe not the pathology, but if you if you let's say if you like quote unquote have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or what let's say like they're these things are like real entities and they're like diseases or whatever whether they're like, you know, you're possessed by spirits or you have the brain problem or whatever. Like, you know, they can put on different glasses that say, my glasses are like a shamanistic view. My glasses are a Western <laughs> imperialist medical view um, or whatever, whatever your your lens is to look at the phenomena of like suffering or internal experience. 
Um, he's actually saying that the evidence shows, he says, uh, understanding the neurobiology of mental illness actually heightens the belief that people with schizophrenia and depression are dangerous and unpredictable. And there's other kind of segments within this piece where he's saying that um, as much as the attempt to neurobiologicalize mental health is to like create a more objective and like helpful framework that it actually can increase sti- the, the evidence is kind of showing that it's increasing stigma um, from, from both sides that people that view themselves as like, Oh, well, there's something wrong with my brain or people outside of them saying, well, there's something wrong with their brain. It actually just, it, it almost solidifies even more that there is sort of something internally mechanically wrong with people um, versus yeah, there's, people are different, right? Like there's differences between different kinds of people and we need to like stick together and support each other and fight for each other. Right. Like just a a basic, I mean, really like a communist idea of like solidarity, like, okay, you're working class. I'm working class. People are trying to like extract from, they're trying to like treat us like shit. Let's be in, let's be in solidarity. Okay. You hear voices and you see stuff that I can't see, or you get in really bad moods sometimes, or you like go into these sort of manic fits or whatever look, comrade, that kind of bugs me or it weirds me out or whatever, but we're in solidarity together, right? I mean, to me, the the it's probably oversimplified, but I think like societally, not from a clinical point of view, but societally moving toward and striving for um, really strong bonds of solidarity, like asking ourselves, how do we just keep building stronger and stronger, um, less and less breakable bonds of solidarity across all kinds of differences, you know, whether it's like so-called mental illness, race, gender, whatever. Um, and, and on that note, I do think that the, the newer concept of like neurodivergence, we'll see kind of where it goes in the longer term, but like, you know, there's, um, like neurotypical, it kind of evolved out of like the autism spectrum conversation instead of people, instead of saying people quote unquote have autism, Mm -hmm. um, or they are autistic, um, again, as a sort of stigmatizing identitarian like label saying, well, there's an autism spectrum and like some people just have, there's like some social things or there's like these ticks or these, you know, there's like this wide spectrum of autism of saying like, okay, well, all right, you guys over there, you're the neurotypicals. You're the ones that like your brains are just totally normal, even though everybody knows like there's no, really no such thing. And everybody else, we're all like neurodivergent, like our, our, our brains like diverge into more sort of creative little galaxy patterns that, that maybe aren't as predictable. Um, and that's okay. In fact, we're kind of embracing that. So I think that's a, a nice, um, a nice like new, newer phenomenon that's emerging, like out of the culture of saying like, because it also allows for difference and allows for connection because our problems are that we are disconnected. I remember reading about how mm-hmm. in Vietnam there was something called fragging, where you were so disconnected from the mission you were on and your commanding officer that you would say, you charge and we'll be behind you, and then they shot him in the back mm-hmm. because they thought, you are leading us into death. We right. don't want that, but they operated in solidarity. Mm-hmm. And really, solidarity and connection are the healthy basis for human life and human health. And where we're in trouble is where we disconnect from ourselves, often in order to please the people in charge of us. So we feel we have to, but then we need to reconnect with ourselves and ourselves as humans needing other humans to make change in our world. 
And I think in figuring out ways to just change the culture more broadly, too, he even looked yes. at this uh, a really large-scale study in South Korea looking, uh, trying to study autism in children. And they actually, the long story short of the study is that they found that there, there was like a significant prevalence of autism. Like you would find, you know, just a, pre- a, a prevalence of most things in most cultures are going to be like somewhat near the same. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes there's huge deviations. But that they found that like most, that because of the more supportive um, networks, as well as something that they call matchmaking. Like, I guess it's a phenomenon in South Korea where there's people that like matchmake people, you know, um, like for marriages and, um, and, and like even friends, like there's people in society that are just considered like, Oh, she's a matchmaker. She, you know, um, that, that people get sort of paired with people that they're more compatible with friendship wise. Like maybe there's somebody that does have a, a more, I mean, you know, that the stereotypical, like, I don't know if you're pretty like sort of quote unquote Asperger's and you're a little bit more introverted and you're like socially awkward or whatever. Like there's other people like that who are going to kind of connect with you more than somebody that's this like social butterfly, you know, you know what I mean? Like that there's the, the very quote unquote social type people. And there's the people that are like really cerebral and overthinking it and like trying to do like math in their heads or something. They're like, no, I'm different from you. That again, that neurodiverse thing that they have like these cultural, um, they found that the cultural fabric itself actually mitigated against the need to create more um, uh, like special education or diagnostic or treatment plans for the so-called autistic kids because they were like, yeah, there's sort of unique things about some of these kids. Um, but, you know, uh, and, and, and they're also, also he was, he's saying that there are some problems with it as well, that like maybe if we were able to identify certain kinds of differences, we could sort of like mitigate them even stronger with a different um, cultural or clinical approach. But anyway, I thought it was a really, it's one of many uh, interesting samples that he kind of jumps around with saying that different cultures respond to the same phenomena differently and the cultural responses to the, what we're calling mental illnesses or mental disorders kind of make or break whether or not people are able to cope with it. That's right. Um, and, and like you're saying, I think like we're in a culture where we mostly are, we, in you know, the majority of cases, it's like, don't care, go yeah. figure it out, go fix it. Yeah. Take talk a to pill. a psychiatrist, either take a pill, see a therapist, go like, go figure out how to fix the thing that's wrong with you. And like, nobody else is really going to help you, you know? Also, you know, as Oliver Sacks wrote so beautifully about this, different mind types have different strains. For example, I looked mm. up Asperger's disease, which is one where people find trouble emotionally connecting with other people and are more attracted to things inside their heads. Over mm. 80% of engineers have tested on that spectrum, but right, it allows right. them to be better at what they do. There are strengths along with Weaknesses and difference should not be pathologized because we're not exactly someone's idea of normal. And as the book says, there is no normal. So Mm. what? We find each other's strengths and we bond. And connection is everything. So, you know, as a someone who is a therapist and really who has never had anyone who I have had as a client and who worked hard and stuck with it. Never, I never had anyone who didn't get better. Of course, I don't deal with right. homeless insane either. But everyone who came in to change your life did. And I think part of it is because I helped them connect with themselves because yeah. that connection had been interrupted. 
and mm-hmm. then connect with other people and connect with me in treatment because right, we right. listened. And I think it's important to remember that in this capitalist society, our field is as infected as everything else. And in addition to the trickle down, there's a heavy propaganda message. And I feel it's the heavy propaganda message of our media and our advertisements and our textbooks and our approaches that get to us just as the economics of trickle down, I think, that because some people are rich, it'll trickle down, that the best image is if you pee in your pants, is a tiny bit that gets into your shoe. That's not enough. <laughs> and that, yeah, yeah. It's, that's not a good uh, way of looking at it, but rather there right. is a steady stream of propaganda and yeah. we have to watch out for that and still try to connect with each other and ourselves. Yeah. And I think um, maybe to, we should probably close out, but I, I agree with you um, that I think one, the, the very helpful thing that therapy can do um, in particular and social work and other, you know, similar kind of like modes of, of help um, is that it can create like one dyadic connective experience that can then be generalized mm. outside of that experience, right? right. So if you learn with a therapist, yeah, I, and if like for for listeners that maybe like are on the fence, like should I see a therapist or whatever? Um, well, and then there's the cost question, right? It's like, well, do I have insurance or do I like? And yeah. that's just a whole other really okay. shitty can of worms. But like for those that have the privilege to be able to see those of us that are so amazing and helpful, um, <laughs> but if like when when you can when you get the opportunity to see a therapist if you're struggling with stuff. And if you are one of those, the one in four Americans that has like no one to talk to, when you find that you finally do have someone to talk to, and yes, it's like professionalized friendship and stuff, right? Like I think I think all the criticisms of therapy are like totally like they're um, they're accurate, right? Like this like professionalized, credentialized, whatever um, you know, professional man- managerial class criticism. However, mm-hmm. if you're able to use it, like like use us, right? Like yeah. use us as a as a tool, as a um, as a means to an end. Like we're not the end; we're the means, right? So That's, use this as a means to be able to get that connection that you are that you you don't have anywhere else, and to to be vulnerable to like be in your shame and say, you know and say like you know that thing you said last session kind of yeah. pissed me off I did it and like oh I'm sorry like let's talk about that I'm sorry about that um, talk about your childhood stuff whatever it is or if it's just practical problem solving stuff I've you know I haven't been doing this as long as Harriet but I'd say I don't want to say all but the majority of people I do think actually start to, um, after not even that long of a period of time, start to kind of adjust to their situation outside of our relationship much better because I'm just able to give them the space to be able to kind of like free themselves up a little bit and figure out which direction in life they need to go um, to solve certain problems. You Um, are, Max, but we also should mm. let our listeners know that just like it's hard to find a good plumber, it may right, right. shop around and see who you want to talk to because yeah. um, you want a therapist who can hear you and see you and acknowledge you because that's yeah. very important too. And uh, since we've already been going for like an hour, I did, we shouldn't get into it. But another time, because you've thought about this a lot more than I have, but I have been thinking more about um, the issue you've touched on a million times of like women's work, basically like women's slash domestic 
and caregiver and emotional labor for for the longest time was not considered real work. And so there was no wage attached to it. There was no compensation or anything. Um, I think taking a deeper dive into that and and how, because it's something I've struggled with a little bit of like, well, is this real work? You know, I mean, we, we're like sort of these white collar workers and this and that, but like, um, in the same way that like cleaning homes, you know, vacuuming, raising kids and all that, yes, it's absolutely real work and it, it actually should be compensated. Um, yeah, and if we had labor, it's intellectual right, exactly. and emotional labor, which is huge. And that's why now in the United States, the majority of managers are women because they have, we're brought up to negotiate rather than muscle, try to mm. coordinate, negotiate rather than push that there are real skills that one learns, emotional skills, and they need to be valued. Well, well that's true. Well, when, it, when we have Catherine Liu on, I think she's going to actually, she's going to have a really uh, harsh view. Like, anyway, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But yeah, um, of, of, the, of the way of the way that women and femininity and empathy and emotions and stuff has actually been sort of weaponized against workers. And they're like, oh, I'm your friend. But anyway, that's yeah, a whole other right. topic. Anyway, um, we'll talk about that. Anyway. <laughs> come back to us. Because yeah. we really want you to give us interaction. We want you to tell us what you like and what you don't. We want mm-hmm. you to, of course, if you can, join Patreon. That helps us enormously. Right. If you can't, we still love you. And we want you to connect <laughs> this podcast with whatever people you have that might be interested so that we can expand yeah. our range of listeners. So. Yeah. yeah. And we, um, we really like having guests on too. I mean, cause there's so many different directions to go in, in these conversations. So, um, if you are someone that you think, as long as you're not just a narcissist and you're just yeah. fully yourself. No, I mean, we don't even believe in that. But like, if you, if you're like, I, I really have a lot of thoughts on this or like, I have a, I have a clinical background or an academic background or like I work in XYZ field and I actually have a lot to say on that. Um, you know, let us know. contact us, let us know. Um, there's also, we have a discord chat for, for patrons that those who know it's like a little chat room. Um, and I'm, I'm in there and Harriet, uh, kind of just, she's a self-described like tech, like, you know, what? tech challenge or whatever yeah. her language is. So she's not in there, but I can like pass messages to her. And, like, <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. And we, we're kind of, it's getting more active. Like the little community of our patrons are like just chatting amongst each other more Good. too. So and maybe I little, even learn it for heaven's sakes. Yeah, I can teach yeah. you if you want. Yeah. So anyway, um, just repeat, if you want to be a supporter, patreon.com slash it's not just in your head. If you want to contact us, email it's not just in your head at gmail.com. And that's it. That's it. Thank you very da, much. Da, da, dun, dun. Yay. All right, everybody. Have a good um, whatever. Day or whatever. <laughs> have a good whatever. Bye. Yes. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader over overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans but the top 10 or 20% of Americans have our security and our chance for a future 
become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head, and capitalism hits home are definitely complementary. And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it? Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, harrietfraud.com.